0: Hello, and welcome to Episode 7 of another architecture podcast. I'm George Bradley, architect and director of London-based studio Bradley van der Straten, and this podcast is for anyone who's interested in going behind the scenes of designing a house. I talk to architects from around the world about how they create inspirational places to live. In this episode, I talk to Ant from the South African architect's Frankie Pappas. They've recently been voted as one of the top 20 emerging architects in the world and describe themselves as a collective with no personal identities. Their mantra is wonderfully similar, incredibly different. Their homes are largely located in rural areas of South Africa and appear to grow out from between the trees, nestle and submerge in the landscape and like one project, span a dried riverbed. They are like no other houses that you have ever seen and actually that's the beauty of them. You can't really see them. Like the people that designed them, they are an enigma. House of the Big Arch is an incredible project, completely nestled in the trees with terraces overlooking the tree canopies. The entrance is tall and narrow like a tree trunk and it peeks out between the trees. Strange and familiar shapes weave between the trees like an old Roman ruin and leaves you asking the question what came first, the building or the foliage? The predominant material is brick, in a tone that matches and blends with the surrounding woods. From the air, the property is barely perceptible, and from inside, the occupants can enjoy all layers of the forest, with terraces at the same height as the roof canopy. In the episode, we cover a range of topics, ranging from Star Wars, the ruins of Great Zimbabwe and the general decay of buildings, shotgun house layouts from New Orleans... How the house of the big arch is inhabited by plants and animals and the benefits of allowing a young person to design you a home i hope you enjoy listening to the episode hello and thank you for joining me on the podcast absolute pleasure thanks so much for having me george so um, I'm allowed to call you Ant, but I can't refer to you as your full name. Um, and this is something that's quite important to Frankie Pappas, as I understand. Um, could you tell me a little bit about um, about that and why? Uh, so I
1: think, uh, yeah, it's not that I desperately don't want my surname out there. I just think it's important in terms of um, how Frankie works. And I think maybe it's best described with a, uh, a little story of where this idea of a collective pseudonym came from mm-hmm. so uh in in the 1930s roundabout there was this uh mathematician called nicholas babaki who came out of absolutely nowhere and he was in his late 60s when he started publishing work that was revolutionary i mean the stuff um, resulted in andrew wiles solving the fermo's last theorem that sort of stuff i mean He's probably 100 years ahead of um, where people were at that time. Mm -hmm. And his story is absolutely crazy. I mean, he was supposedly born in Greece and then had to move to the Eastern Bloc countries because war broke out in um, Greece, and then he moved to Iran and war broke out there. Anyway, war war followed him everywhere. (laughs) Ended up teaching Baccarat on the left bank of the Seine in order to make ends meet. Mm-hmm. Um, and then started publishing these crazy papers. And the remarkable thing about Nicholas Babaki is that he didn't exist. So he was, in essence, 10 uh, youngsters who were uh, mathematicians, all in their early 20s in France. And they decided all to forgo their egos and publish their works under this collective pseudonym, Nicholas Babaki. Um and really revolutionized the way math is mm-hmm. looked at and um I think generally in in a in a place like South Africa, which is a place that is undergoing incredible social change and thank God for that um I don't think there is much place for ego uh if if we're planning on, um, you know, defining or creating the culture and the society we want, we've got to invent this thing. And Mm -hmm. I don't think there's a place for ego in that invention. And so Frankie Pappas is exactly this. It's a collective pseudonym that allows a whole bunch of people to collaborate under that name without any ego. And so, I mean, obviously my name's Ant, but that's kind of irrelevant because I'm irrelevant in the
0: organization. really. (laughs) But also in terms of um, the other key aspect is it is a collaboration as well. So as well as the ego being important, there's parallels with um, with this Nicholas collective in the sense that you describe on your website that your collective includes coders and mathematicians and artists as well as architects. Um, Could you maybe tell me a little bit about why that's important or what or maybe what that brings to the work that you produce? Okay, so I think it's super. The first thing is Frankie's super loose. So
1: um, everyone mocks us about being uh, hyper millennials. You know that it's everyone <laughs> works as loosely as possible. There is no office. We all collaborate with one another before lockdown in coffee shops, um, over Google Hangouts, whatever the medium is. Um, hopefully, there's wine involved. That's how we. Sp- Generate ideas, really. But I mean, it is a super loose thing. So when I'm talking about um, us collaborating with people, yeah, there's uh, a good example, f- um, for instance, is a piece of art we produced, uh, a whole series, um, which is about generating, uh, distilling an entire film down into a single image. And that requires a, the the code we wrote in order to do this requires trillions and trillions of calculations. So this is an immense amount of work that needs to go on in order to produce this. And, uh, you know, I dabble in code, other people dabble in film, and but we need an astrophysicist to help us, you know, mm-hmm. make this code more efficient. And so we get them involved as, as easily, as, or as quickly as possible. And, you know, they're just going to solve the problem so much better, so much quicker. And how often does an astrophysicist get involved in a piece of art? Mm-hmm. You know, so it's all wonderful for everyone involved, and I think the thing is with architects is we often surround ourselves with people that think similarly to us. I think this is not only an architectural uh, problem; I think this is a professional problem, um, and probably a human issue. Is that it's a, a, we sur- if we surround ourselves with people we feel comfortable with, um, that's kind of our our safe space, and by Working with people that th- see the world differently i mean it's bound to uh, produce solutions that are novel mm-hmm. and i don't i don't only mean uh, um, see the world differently in terms of their expertise you know what what job they do I mean it in terms of who they are and how they've grown up and experienced the world you know as a as a South african like a white male South African, I've grown up like I was born on the right side of a seriously unfair society. And so I see the world in a particular way.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: If I deal with, uh, you know, I'm 30 years old. If I deal with uh, a 50 old um, black bricklayer, that guy is going to see the world incredibly differently. And uh, in House of the Big arch, for instance, if um, the bricky, the head bricky is uh, a Zimbabwean, unbelievable man and the problems would never have been solved uh in the way they were you know had he not been involved
0: and, and so, so well, you let's... bow down
1: to that superior knowledge and you kind of uh, let go of your ego because other people are better than you at a lot of things
0: and how did that work then with the house of the big arch so i'm hoping this this started out with with a a wine drinking session and um maybe there was an astrophysicist at the table at this (laughs) stage but it's an it's an amazing project it's what you're saying makes sense in terms of how this project probably came about because when i first saw it it stunned me as in i'd never seen a house like this before um what what was the influence how did that come about was it was it one of these sort of sessions around the table that um this kind of design evolved um yeah so i think this is a And
1: uh, a really good question because, uh, you know, I give you the silly example of a piece of art, but how does, um, uh, as though a piece of art is silly, but I mean, uh, this is a a building is often far more complex than writing a piece of code, uh, particularly the short code we write. But there, yes, the, the collaboration is fundamental. I mean, I'm going to lay this out, kind of how this looked is that, um, the team we assembled is uh, – let's start with the clients because I think they're a huge portion of that team. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a function of them being incredibly clear with the, with the brief, first of all. So, the, I mean, that takes a long time. That's <coughs> two months of questions to, you know, get to what the brief actually is. Mm-hmm. Because I don't think you want to decide – you don't want to uh, get wedded to an idea – Quickly, at all, you you want to get wedded to the idea at the right time, and so they were so clear regarding the fact that no trees should be demolished. So us us then lidar scanning fifty five thousand square meters um that's one
0: serious job, and so these um, land surveys are. I mean, they did a remarkable job. And sorry, why were you scanning fifty five thousand square meters? So in terms of in the traditional sense, did these clients have a site that was that big, and part of the process was just thinking where to put the house.
1: Okay, so the nature reserve is 5,000 hectare. Yeah. Um, so the 55,000 squares was about the area that was possible to build in.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Let's call it that, in in the valley. Now, obviously, of those 55,000 squares, we found um, probably the footprints, footprint of House of the Big Arch is – oh, jeez – from one side to the other, it's 3 times 20, so it's 60 squares. So in those mm-hmm. 55,000 squares, we were able to find 60 squares that we could put the building, <laughs> you know. So <laughs> that's maybe one of the, the reasons we LIDAR scanned that whole place. And then with that LIDAR scanning, you're picking up um, all the branches. You're picking up where the, you know, where the roots enter the ground. With the knowledge of the clients, you then know what the likely spread of those root systems are. Um, and so you're able to design something within that, and then I remember the the architect during this was when this started was 23 years old, so that's super young to, to yes. start doing this. Um, and but then you're you're supported by people that are the the engineer, for instance, is a 75 year old Welsh dude. So it, when you combine a seventy-five-year-old uh, Welsh dude with a Zimbabwean um, who's forty and a South African who's twenty-three. These solutions are going to be strange, and then you got some uh, vets telling you what you're supposed to be building. Um, and I mm-hmm. think I think that's the idea is is, is understanding when when to acknowledge. Someone is incredibly experienced at something, and then also to be comfortable with people uh, undermining your ex- expertise. Yeah. So, you can, um, I, I mean, we South Africans are quite conservative, I think, in that regard. And so, we have it's often very difficult for a youngster to tell, um, um, uh, like a middle aged man who owns a company, uh, no, you should be doing it this way. And so you've got to be really smart about who you're picking uh, in order to form part of the team. And I mean, the whole, the, the tagline or the motto of Frankie Pappas is wonderfully similar, beautifully different. And I'm, I will continue harping on about that because that is how it works, right? It's um, wonderfully similar in the f- fact that we're all after, uh, or we share the similar, the same goal. And that's like uh, a reverence for the future, I mean, that's the ideal we all share, but mm-hmm. it's uh, the power is in sharing that, but then being incredibly different um, and that's why the Springboks beat England in the world Cup rugby
0: wow. <laughs> you're talking to the wrong person I'm, okay, I so, I know nothing about rugby, so um hopefully that's probably going that's probably going to wind up some uh, listeners for sure, but it's yeah. right over my head. <laughs> um but if we go back to maybe um a bit of context actually of where this this house is located because i love on the description of the project it says that the project the house is 120 square meters the site is 55000 square meters um it's not often you see a description like that what what is the context it's it's in a nature reserve in the waterberg mountains of south africa yeah and there's a strong link between these clients and this Nature Reserve. So, what's this? What's the place like, and what's what's the link with the clients? So, I mean, um, the clients are pretty
1: are super involved with um, conservation. So, this this um, nature reserve was a farm and been converted into a nature reserve. So, that comes with obligations, certain obligations, in order to be met, and then it has um, certain government. A backing. Let's call it, um, a, one has to apply for nature reserve status and then it gets protected to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then the onus is on the clients in order to maintain the reserve. Um, so that's um, who the clients are and I suppose what their goal is. Um, the The site itself, as i said is is quite huge or the farm the the valley itself is is remarkable because it is a north facing valley let's call it mm-hmm. all, one side of it is the side that we built built on which is um quite a you know it's the side of the valley to be building on in the southern hemisphere mm-hmm. um but interestingly um you're taught in, in in school to align your building on an east-west axis so that the building orientates towards the sun. And then you handle the solar shading with some, you know, uh, overhangs or whatever the case is. Uh, this building it works in exactly the opposite way. It's a fascinating building in that it orientates itself in a north-south axis and opens Mm -hmm. itself up to the east and west, which in theory is completely the wrong thing to do. In saying that there's the, the environmental design of this works in a way that when the sun is on the east side of the building, it, um, the building itself casts a shadow onto the western side of the forest, if that makes sense to you. Yeah. So, uh, and on that western side, there will then be a high-pressure zone that gets created of cool air. And when one opens the windows in the dining room, for instance, that high-pressure cool air will be pulled through the house onto the eastern side. And when the sun moves directly over the building, it it doesn't really penetrate the building it's got very little penetration possibility when it moves on uh, into the afternoon and it shines in from the west it's going to create a high pressure zone on the east and pull cool air, um through the building east to west
0: and was that an intentional part of the design that influenced the orientation or is the is the shape of this building completely dictated by the space that was available between the existing trees I mean, that's a seriously good question.
1: The, the, I think there are, two, there, there are two answers to that. The, the thing is, could we have orientated it um, in an east-west axis? Maybe. There may well have been opportunity to do that. That negates an opportunity to connect the sandstone cliff to the forest. Mm-hmm. So when if you're building parallel to the contours, what that'll inevitably do is give you a similar experience to if you're sitting on that same contour. What House of the big arch does successively is uh, is start at uh, say a contour number five up on the hill and and just go out on that plane all the way into the mm-hmm. forest. So when you're in the forest, you end up being five meters above. The ground, and that's at the, the, you know, the the fire pit on top of that arch,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I think that's an experience you'll not get unless you make that move. Yeah, and the fact that uh, the clients are big birders, I mean, it it seems a natural thing to put the building up in the air amongst the trees, but there's something different between uh, the the obvious thing would be if someone asked you to build a tree house, the obvious thing would be be to build it out of wood I mean there's value in that yeah but I think it's more interesting to build a tree house uh, out of brick so those 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 are competing uh, uh, you know they, they're competing the material competes against the
0: the intention which is just like intellectually interesting to me but to describe the project I mean I don't want to try and attempt to describe it to listeners in a few sentences because it would be very difficult. Um, but I think what you're saying there about the contours and this cliff, I think one good analogy is that it's almost like a promenade, like a seaside promenade. If the cliff is is the beach, um, this building is projecting out like a platform, and the sea is is the trees, and it's projecting out into the sea, and then. So it's a very long, linear and very thin house. That's one of the remarkable things, extremely like 3.3 metres wide uh, along most of its length, and then opens out at one end onto a a kind of terrace viewing platform that's at the tree canopy level. Um, But the name, the House of the Big Arch, um, describes a lot of the forms of the building. Um, Where does that name come from? Why why is it called the House of the Big Arch? (laughs) Okay, so in...
1: Uh, I'm going to take a dig at a couple uh, of uh, conventions in South Africa because uh, <laughs> we like to adopt a lot of other cultures. So when when fancy architects design something, they'll call it, I can't even get the pronunciation right, maison, something or other. And, you know, as if we're a French colony or <laughs> speak French or whatever the case is. I mean, it's nuts. Um, so the... the House of the came from uh, the idea that let's just be real. It's a house and, it's, and we need to describe it in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, and the arch is a seven-meter arch, so it's a big thing. Um, and so the, that name just stuck. And all of our buildings are House of the something or other. Uh, we're currently with House of the Flying Bowtie. And there's a <laughs> flying bowtie up in the sky,
0: that's why it's fly- has the flying bow tie. and the arch is that a is that a practical response? Is it a solution to the context of the site?
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, definitely. I mean, the 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 thing is, if you're going to build a um, a, let me unpack first why why we used brick, because mm-hmm. I think I think I can imagine people asking that question: Why on earth would you not just build it out of timber? Mm-hmm. So the thing is, brick is incredibly cheap. I mean, we're paying uh, less than two rand a brick. So uh, if you're converting that, I think that's 10 cents mm-hmm. in British money. Um, so I don't think that's a lot of money. And so it becomes an incredibly um, versatile and cheap building method. The, the thing is, when you grow up in a, in a, and are educated in a world where there's a certain scarcity and I'm talking about that in terms of cash and wealth, which I think is an issue that the like the global south is dealing with. And you're educated that way. What you end up doing is stripping away anything that's unnecessary. Uh, personally, uh, we see that as a huge um, uh, potential. Like uh, that is not a negative at all. So any decision you're making is rooted in a hell of a lot of thought because you're forced to explain yourself. Why am I going to be spending this extra money on an arch, for instance? Or why am – there has to be reason for that. So when we're building out of uh, – when we're building out of brick, it, it affords us – it is a cheap building material, and so therefore we gravitate towards that. Uh, that. Those bricks are also mined very close to that site. I mean, when I say very close – a couple hundred k's away and the sandstone is the same and so we get it i mean it matches the cliffs perfectly but when you're um when you're building out of brick at, like i think i'm every architect's going to be shouting louis khan louis Kahn, louis khan louis khan <laughs> he says when you're building out of brick the brick wants to be an arch and then you say no but don't you want a lintel and he's no 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 i want an arch and so if you're going to be spanning seven meters and you're doing it out of bricks, it's super cheap. Um, you you just need formwork and a, a couple of things, a rebar versus a seven meter span is a big thing. Um, and you're probably going to need a 600 mil beam to do that. So the arch is a super typical, uh,
0: you know, it's... Uh, but what's it sp- it's spanning? a. Is it a dry riverbed that it's spanning? Is that... that the- uh, so, okay. So the the question is why the
1: arch and why not just the wall? Yeah. So there, there's a, there's a, the office, the home office, I suppose, to that building sits underneath the kitchen and looks out through that arch towards the river. Right. So I think it's a, not only, a, I mean, an arch is cheaper than a wall in that we're building nothing as opposed to something. Mm-hmm. Um, but also it's something one can see through and, and it frames that view really beautifully. Um, yeah, so, so it's, I,
0: it's kind of lighter touch, isn't it? And it creates, I mean, what I love about the the house is it creates a real dynamic, there's through spaces, it's not a barrier, it kind of sits happily between the trees, as if, almost as yeah. one, in, in a I sense. I mean,
1: there is a tree, uh, now that you mentioned it, there is a tree on the northwestern side of that arch. Had we built a wall, we would have destroyed that tree's roots. Mm. So, I mean, you're trying to touch the earth in as few places as possible, I suppose. So we we touch it at the lounge, we touch it in that office kitchen area, and we touch it on the arch. And then mm-hmm. the rest are those timber bridges which span those areas.
0: And the... I mean, it must have presented so many challenges, this form and the space that's been left for you or given to you by the trees, the spaces in between, that's resulted in this very narrow house. Um, what were the challenges there in terms of then creating livable spaces that worked and flowed um, in, in such a sort of narrow form? Uh, I
1: like that question. So um, the idea of a, th- a three-metre spine... Or three point three meter spine is um there was this book that is fundamental, like it is the most fascinating book. It I had, it's an American book and it goes through all of the um, the typologies of buildings in the U.S. And one of them was a shotgun house that gets built in Louisiana, where it's just room after room after room after room, and it, mm-hmm. it starts with the I suppose the lounge and ends with the master bedroom and this thing, this, and, um, I think they call it a dog run house. Those two buildings of like, they're just so those two plans are just so beautiful. Um, and so the shotgun, I suppose this thing just is a shotgun house. Um, so you you learn from, uh, what they, what they've resolved in Louisiana or wherever they were building Mississippi. I'm not sure. Um, and you adopt that form just in a in a slightly different way. There, there are, um, like you say, there are instances where that where we break away from that three point three meter spine.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And one of the, those are generally service spaces. Um, so one of the main things is the scullery that bulges out to the west. That's a circle, and then the entrance, which is this uh, that entrance is, is quite fun because um, it it goes comp- – it's like we set up this crazy symmetry and then we just disregard it completely at one point. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's quite a fun move, I think. And, and I don't only mean the bilateral symmetry of that plan nor- on the north-south axis. I mean there are what like we call fractal symmetries. There are fra- symmetries throughout the building that you'll find that uh, kind of – exist quite on a small scale and they develop up into this. Uh, uh, what is noticeable on plan is a bilateral symmetry, but I think um, that's a bit of a cop-out, that bilateral symmetry argument. Um, so we set up the symmetry that you get told and told and told about in this building. and And then at some point, this crazy arm comes out and just goes at 35 degrees And the reason for that 35 degrees angle and that entrance is because the builder set out the building 30 centimeters in the wrong place. (laughs) So so when we got to building what was supposed to be the initial entrance, we couldn't do that anymore. So we redesigned the entrance completely. Oh, I like like that. So Um, you'll notice there's one notch cut out of this uh, entrance it is a bizarre shape and you wonder why that is there's a tree there
0: yeah but that's working yeah. with limitations and it creates um a beautiful response um can I tell you what it reminded me of when I, when I was looking at it I for me I kind of see it's like a a landing craft a spaceship that's kind of landed in the forest a kind of star wars type one and you know a bit sort of long and spindly and the entrance is almost like the entry ramp that's kind of opened at an angle to the side of the building and you go through the trees to get, go up and you go up into the house, don't you? And, um, but I like how the, the entrance is very exaggerated as well. It's this extremely narrow, again, narrow entrance, but very tall, double, triple height. Um, is that... And, and you can definitely draw analogies with a tree, uh, a tree kind of stump. Um, was, that, was that an intentional thought? Is that a purely luxurious space? Is it just um, kind of beautiful double height space or is it, is it doing something? Is there a function behind that? Okay, so first I'm going to say
1: that you're probably one of my new best friends referencing Star Wars there. <laughs> <laughs> like the, the fact that, I mean, there's, there's a set of buildings uh, in Tikal, uh, I think in Guatemala, that are these ancient pyramids, and they just emerge out of this forest, and it was a set for Star Wars. So the fact right. that you're referencing that, like, is getting my mind going in different places, and I think we're going to email a lot about this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if you can reference our work to Star Wars, uh, then we're doing the right thing. Um, <laughs> so that that entrance um, is. It needs to be that height because of two things. First of all, we're going up another floor. So if mm-hmm. we, we have to get from when we're walking on the pathway to that building, there's that ramp, but we have to get up five meters from the ground floor. So there's that ramp that gets you up in essence to three quarters of a floor. And then there's some stairs that get you the rest of the way up. But if we didn't have that height, we wouldn't be able to get to the height of the roof of the first floor. Let's call it that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, it is, it's a requirement just by, it's a programmatic requirement, but also it slopes at 15 degrees that, um, uh, that roof of that entrance in order to exaggerate the height further. But I mean, that's also a waterproofing issue Uh, when you're building that roof is brick. Um, the ceiling is brick. The whole roof is brick. And when you're building out of brick like that, you got to get the water away.
0: And the, um, the floor is brick as well, isn't it? And everything, in a lot of the, yeah, everything, everything. If, if when it's
1: when it's a brick element, it's brick. When it's a timber element, it's timber. You know, yeah. I see this thing again. It 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 harks back to this idea of um, like the elemental nature of what you're building and the fact that um, you. I'm sorry to have a go at the Western world here, but um, I don't think there's enough rigor in deciding what's necessary and what's not. When when the Western world talks about minimalism, they talk about it as an aesthetic concern. Uh, that is not what minimalism should be and can be. There's something about um, taking that idea from a scarcity perspective, acknowledging that scarcity exists, and then shaking off anything that's not necessary. The term we use is uh, is anti-fragile. This idea that the opposite of fragility, or let's define fragility as something that if you place pressure on this object, it's going to break. And we generally say, "Oh, well, the opposite of fragility is robustness." That is to say, um, if you apply pressure on something, it nothing happens to it. But that is not the exact definition of the opposite of fragile. We describe the opposite of fragile as anti-fragile, and that's if you apply pressure on something, it gets better. And we keep on talking about this idea of, um, of ruins. The, the fact that, uh, I don't know if, if you're aware or any of your listeners will be aware of uh, Great Zimbabwe. I mean, this place is like magical and it's a function it's better now than it probably ever was i mean i wasn't alive when that thing was built 2000 odd years ago but it's just remarkable it is overgrown and it is just like it sticks in your mind you'll never forget it when you see this and as i'm aw- as far as i'm aware the colosseum used to be completely overgrown and then mm-hmm. it was decided no 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 that's not how it should be we should remove that jungle and restore it to, I don't, I don't know what, who decided what to restore it to, but it's such a missed opportunity. If you, if you're not acknowledging the fact that uh, these things get better, I mean, everyone will learn that the, the the Parthenon was painted red and blue and all sorts of junky colors. I mean, it must've looked like the most gaudy, horrible building ever. Mm -hmm. And it's better now that it's broken and, um bleached white and everything it retain it has a, like something elemental about it it's a and
0: you know that's what we try try to achieve in the buildings we create are you, is, are you looking forward to that then an element of decay on this house is is there is that planned that gradually trees are going to take over
1: geez i hope so i mean it it is already it, it was first i mean the first thing was to describe oh well imagine we could make this house that it was not only a building for humans now, f- first of all okay i i've uh, when that's approached to me as an idea, I'm super excited about that. If my client wants to do that, geez, like we're going to go at this full steam ahead, so this is and, something they said to you yeah exactly right that, yeah. that uh, you know this is not this is not our site, this is not our farm, none mm. of this belongs to us, um we're just super lucky. To be able to inhabit this space, you know, it, I mean, it's such. I mean, the privilege is unbelievable uh, to be able to wake up there and cook there and do whatever you, you know, however you live, do that in an environment like that. And so, your obligation is to revere that site, mm-hmm. um, and and I continually speak about uh, that reverence. I mean, we all do. We speak about reverence of of. And I don't mean respect. Respect is you respect your parents or um, whatever you respect someone. That is not the same as reverence. Reverence is deep and it's and it's fundamental to how you approach something. And the the most interesting thing about that is, uh, like I was going on about this reverence of the site, reverence of this. A, a young woman came up to me and said, "No, no, auntie, you're talking absolute rubbish. This is not what you you do at all. This is not what you guys do." Um, you didn't save those trees because you revere the site; it's because you revere the future. And after, I mean, that is just a, f- a remarkable comment from a remarkable woman. Um, but I mean, it gets one's mind going in completely different ways. the uh, The future is the future belongs to the people who are going to inhabit it, and so the invention of the future is completely possible. It's. Um, we often talk about the idea that uh, we're often approached by uh, for, uh, by people saying, uh, design us X because the world is going that way, as mm-hmm. if someone can predict the future and, and tell us where the world is going. And then the, the problem is not only the absurdity of being able to predict the future or thinking one can predict the future. It's the idea that you have a power to make the future, so you needn't predict it so you uh, the the like the reverence for the future is so fundamental to um the way we think about the world um now that i've been told how i how i think about the world by someone far smarter than me
0: um, <laughs> but in term in relating it to this house then um you know what do you think about the future of this house this is very specific to some what sound like clearly amazing clients that that do have a lot of respect or reverence for, for this area. And I think from what I understand, they work here as well. It's, it's part of their work in terms of conservation. Um, what's the future beyond them? You know, what do you, what do you think happens to a place like this? Is it, a, is it a very habitable place? Is it, a, it seems like it's in the middle of nowhere. It seems a very um uh, acquired taste, let's say, in terms of a way of living. Yeah. I mean,
1: it's definitely, um, I think, what do i think is going to happen with this building in 100 years it's likely just going to be the brick structures mm-hmm. right the timber is going to maybe not a 100 years maybe 500 years or whatever but uh, you know it's not going to last forever and i think it's going to be subsumed by its environment uh, or consumed by its environment and that's completely fine it's already being consumed by its environment they're vervet monkeys that play on that roof every day mm. they're aloes that are growing up there now um yeah, obviously they're going to be snakes that get involved with that building. They're going to be bats that habit inhabit that cellar, which they do. They inhabit the entrance. This place is—it's uh, there's a genet that has made that place its home. I've said a number of times there are leopards that walk underneath that building. So the fact wow. that it is able to sit there. And animals feel comfortable enough to walk around it and do whatever they want to do. They,
0: like, that's good enough for me. And for the humans, what do you think it's like to live in as a house?
1: So, I, if you're if you're comfortable living in nature, that is like I don't think the success of this building is the fact that it. Maybe I give an analogy about this. So when when contemporary architects design a view. It's often a view at something. So we'll open up um, a whole wall towards this incredible view. And what, what that does is it says it divorces you from the thing you're looking at. It's like a piece of artwork. You are looking at this thing and that's fine. There are opportunities for that and um, there are places to do that. What this building does is it doesn't offer you that view. The view is incredibly intimate. It's almost, the success of the building is that it gets out of the way mm-hmm. and it, it uh, allows the site to be like an integral part of, of that building. And that's for me, the most you know successful portion of, of that. And I keep, I keep saying, I keep speaking about the animals and the plants inhabiting it precisely for this reason. It's, it's, of its site and everything feels comfortable in and around that building, you know? And so that's, that's probably the thing we're most proud of. I must, it's, that's what I was going
0: to ask you. That's what I was going to ask you next actually. But, um, I mean, have you stayed there at the, you spent the night in the house and, um, did, did it sort of present any things that you didn't foresee in the design or expect in terms of the experience of staying there? um,
1: Hmm. I can't say I, I was surprised because of, of how in, involved one is in a building mm. of a building. I I think architects will understand this quite easily, but other clients will not understand this or non architects. Is that you're you're so involved in the production of the building? Um, working out all these details, working out the constructability, you're there while this thing is being built. It's like um, being in lockdown and slowly getting fatter. You know, you you don't notice it or you're not surprised, but someone sees you after three months and they're, oh my word, what on earth happened to you? And that's, I think, the thing about uh, being uh, involved in, in the built environment is you see this thing progress. And, you know, these things take however many years to build it's an incredibly um slow um game we play i think Mm. so the surprise thing i i can't say i was terribly surprised by what it turned out like
0: you know i'm sorry that's not the most (laughs) fascinating answer but it's kind of the truth well what about the owners what's been their response um I don't know how long they've been living in the place now, but if they given you feedback.
1: I mean, the, the the best thing that I think has been said about it is, I, I can't remember the exact words, but when I asked to write something for us, right, just a couple sentences or whatever, it was something along the lines of we asked Frankie to um, draw out our visions, and they gave us something we could never have imagined. And that's, that's, uh, I mean, that's wonderful, right? The, and yeah. also, it's not every client that that is comfortable giving that level of freedom. I think we've been incredibly lucky in the people we've worked with. House of the Flying Bowtie, I mean, there's a flying bowtie in there, so the people must give us a certain level of freedom, right? I mean, even if it's just for the name, but... <laughs> <laughs> Somehow we're able to convince these people. I think it's through the fact that we involve them so early on, and these forms are, are not—they're not products of our imagination. They're products of the solution we're looking for. Mm. And I kind of harp on about that—that uh, that these architecture for me is not an aesthetic art in the fact that you're looking for something, you're trying to make something beautiful. You're trying to find solutions which are inherently beautiful. Mm. It's the same way mathematicians describe uh, the, you know, the uh, the functions they've derived or, or the methods they've derived. There's nothing terribly beautiful about uh, the letters written on the board, but they understand there's something in, like elemental about what they've created, and that's where the beauty
0: lies. Mm. I was reading, I'm reading, at the moment I'm reading this book about the, the founder of Nike, and literally the, the passage I was reading last night, he was talking about, I think his background is in accountancy, and somebody that inspired him that he was working with that just managed to make numbers on a page beautiful and turned them into an art. Um, is this the
1: shoe dog? With full shoe knot. dog, yes, yeah. Unbelievable. That guy had big kahunas, jeez. I mean, but it's but, it's
0: interesting, isn't it, of something you know, spreadsheets, Excel sheets, numbers, but the, with the right people, it can yeah, be turned and, into magic. And it's exactly that, right? When when we were solving, I mean, I don't know if
1: you've ever seen a brick ceiling. Um, that wasn't that wasn't any of the architect or engineer's idea. That was the builder's idea. Mm. So, and and if you're trying to solve the physics of <laughs> of hanging bricks from a ceiling. That's not an easy thing to do, and I mean, uh, the, there's a f- that physics is just beautiful when, when you look at it, and in essence, how it works is the bricks fall into one another. So um, the left brick falls into the right brick, and hmm. they're holding themselves up. I mean, it's like your, your belt holding up your pants and your
0: pants holding up your belt. who's the hero. That's the kind of thing that's going on there. It's unbelievable. Well, we, I mean, we work with a lot of old properties here in London, a lot of Victorian properties, and when you start taking them apart, they don't make sense. But when they're together as a, as a composition, they just, they hold each other up, all the different parts of the house is maybe very similar here in terms of, so this was a design that, that changed while you were in construction. So it wasn't a brick ceiling to start with. So I imagine this is a very fluid process in terms of adapting to, to needs and. So (laughs) I think doing a a flat
1: ceiling, I didn't think, or we didn't think was a possibility, right? Um, That's not something I've come across. I don't think many people have come across that. Mm. I I can't pull something out of my brain uh, where I've seen that before. Um, And we knew we were going to do brick beams. We've seen those before. You know, one knows one can do that. But a brick flat ceiling um, I think that the audacity to do that w- was brought about by the builder's audacity to do that. And that's only achievable because he he doesn't know it's not possible. It w- I mean, that sounds weird, but he has X expertise and everyone with Y expertise, for instance, a 75 year old, engineer says, well, that's not possible, so has not even considered it. Mm. Uh, Same with the the architect. I mean, that's maybe just not in their reference because they're overeducated, in inverted commas, you know? And so you require people to say, to to be comfortable to, um, you know, throw a couple of rocks at um, the way you think things should be done.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, In terms of this project, if... If there was sort of a takeaway for for people listening, um, what would be like the one thing that you'd think that you'd like to sort of have been learnt maybe by people listening, or that might be even copied or emulated in some way in in house design in general? Is there anything that really stands out for you that you you wish would be more mainstream, maybe? Um. Okay, so maybe I,
1: I again, I think I take this back to the way that we structure things because the architecture is is everyone tells you it's an old man's game. It's like you don't reach your best until you're 65. And I think that's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. The reason you, you only become a great architect when you're 65 is that's when you're told you're going to be great. And that's what all the old great people tell you is the case. And, um, they only afford you the opportunities when you're that old. So, yeah, it's, of course that's going to be the case. But when you put um, remarkable young people in charge of, of anything, they surprise the hell out of anyone. I mean, it's just mind-blowing what is achievable. And I think that's got a lot to do with the fact that um, youngsters aren't jaded yet by mm. the world. And long may it last. You know, if you can get a fifty-year-old that's not jaded by the world, I mean, something remarkable has happened to that person, and um, kudos to that person for keeping that enthusiasm. But when you when you're twenty-three, the world like like that builder. You don't know you don't know what's. I, I mean, this builder is an old dude, and he's incredibly experienced. But I'm saying, when you're twenty-three, you come out of school, you've not been told how to do anything. Um, And I think uh, um, not knowing stuff is fundamental to producing stuff. And I would hope that um, more practices, more studios in the future, and I'm not only talking about this from an architectural perspective, I think this is important through the um, whole built environment that um, they provide the structure for young people to perform remarkable you know, acts. And that's, it's it's something like I hold incredibly dear to my heart is the fact that the, maybe this gets a bit political, but the fact is that the South African built environment is owned by 65-year-old white men. And that is the reason our cities look the way they do. If you, because they're the people making the decisions, and yet, unfortunately, they're only going to last another ten years. So they're building a future that they're not going to inhabit. I think that's unfair. I think the future should be produced by twenty odd year olds. I mean, really, they're remarkable humans, and they 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 should be in charge of creating the future they want. Um, so that's that would be my takeaway: is that youngsters are remarkable, and they should be given opportunities to demonstrate that.
0: I'm going to go to um, the three questions now that I ask everybody that, that joins me on the podcast. Um, And one of them starts with you and your home. Um, I'm guessing that you don't live um, in the tree canopy uh, in the middle of a nature Mm. reserve, but um, there must be something about your home that really annoys you. Um, What would it be if you had to pick one thing? It's part of a bad city
1: and I can't walk to the shops and that, every person in the same block as me looks the way I do. It's an incredibly homogenous um, world that I, that I live in currently. Um, uh, everyone has a similar earth size. Everyone is pretty much white. Everyone has a similar income. And all the properties are houses. So uh, I'm going to take it a bit broader, but yeah, mm-hmm. the fact that it's, it's situated
0: in a Terrible city. what? Which city is that, sorry? Pretoria. Pretoria. Um, and if you could describe one house that you've visited that's really inspired you or that's made you feel happy, um, what would you choose? House of the Yellow Wall.
1: Um, that's a building we did that is just, it's it's, a, it's the stupidest little building, but it's 100 squares. It's a renovation of a police barracks uh, into an apartment. Uh, it's got this crazy yellow wall. Um, in a t- tiny kitchen, it was remodeled to separate the public from the private. But, I mean, that—that that is an incredibly joyous building. And um, that was so much fun. And that's where a lot of wine was drunk and where <laughs> the, a lot of artworks came out of. So th- that was just, I mean, maybe the personalities in there were part of the reason.
0: But that is just,
1: yeah, a really fun building.
0: And then if you could choose any designer to design you a home, um, who would you choose? And a lot of people have asked um, whether they can bring back people from the dead and you can. Oh, I never even thought of that.
1: Um, um, Esther Mishlangu would be the person. Um, She's like a, I don't know how old she is. She must be in her nineties. She's an artist. I mean, her house is just unbelievable. It is mind blowing. I can't believe she's not, the most famous human being in the world. It's that beautiful. Yeah.
0: Okay. Well, Ant, um, thank you very much for joining me for this session. Um, I I can't wait really to see what uh, Frankie Papas does next, um, but I'm sure there's a few interesting projects in the pipeline, um, but we'll keep, keep an eye out for them. Um, But thank you very much for joining me today.
1: Thanks so much for having us. And sorry for bending your ear uh,
0: with my, tyrannical rents no it's been it's been fascinating thank you Good. thanks so much George. thank you for listening to this episode if you'd like to find out more about frankie Pappas and about house of the big arch then please visit our website at anotherarchitecturepodcast.com where you will find links to their work And please try out the podcast Instagram to see the work of all my guests and sneak previews of upcoming guests. If you enjoyed the episode, please give us a review on iTunes or whichever platform you are listening on, as it's a great way to help other people find the podcast. I look forward to you joining me for the next episode. Thank you again for listening.